Hi, welcome to the Newberry Chronicles. This is a podcast in which two readers go through every Newberry Medal winning book, and then we talk about them. I'm Michael. And I'm Rebecca. And this time on the podcast, uh, we're going to be talking about the 1992 Newberry Medal winner, which is Shiloh, uh, written by Phyllis Reynolds Naylor. Um, But before that, a couple of things. First, don't forget that you can email us your thoughts, your hot takes, your unpopular opinions. Um, at NewberryChronicles at gmail.com. Um, also, don't forget that we're now subjecting you to a few minutes of us talking about things that we're currently reading. Um, so we'll get into that, and then we'll talk about this, this book, Shiloh. Rebecca? Yeah. What have you been reading? Well, I'm still reading Bel Canto, which I shared that I was reading last time we did this podcast. Here's the thing about me. I go through a lot of audiobooks, but if I'm reading a physical copy, it is hard for me to find time in the day to sit down and read the physical copy, so those take me longer. Well, you can talk about your audiobooks. Well, I know, but I'm just saying it's not, I'm very interested in Belcanto, and it's not because I'm not interested in it that I'm not done with it yet. But anyway, I am really enjoying that book. Um, I feel like I talked about that one last time. Or no, I was just starting it. But any, anyway, any, uh, new thoughts? that book is about, um, it's about a hostage situation in which this beautiful singer has been invited to uh, sing. She's an opera singer. Invited to sing at the birthday party of a businessman who this country has invited to come here because they want to do business with him. He actually has no interest in doing business with them, but he loves this singer and wants to see her in person. And um, the these um, guerrilla soldiers want to take down the president. And everybody that is a somebody is supposed to be at this party. So they um, bust up the party trying to capture the president. It turns out the president missed the birthday party because his soap opera was on (laughs) and he didn't want to miss his soap opera. So he did not come to the party. So now they're stuck in a situation where they're holding all these people hostage and they're trying to decide what to do. And it's very good. Um, This is my first Ann Patchett novel and her prose is really good. Um, Her bookstore is really good too. Yes. Did we talk about this last time? I don't remember. We always said, I think, was that this was my first Ann Padgett Okay. Book. We went to her bookstore, Parnassus Books, in Nashville um, a couple months ago, where, which is where you bought this copy. Yes. And it's signed by her. But not in person. We were not there when she no. signed it. No. So. But she signs all of her books that are in there. Um, so anyway, it, it's very, very good. And just to spice things up, the singer, for some reason, <laughs> for some reason... When I was reading this book, I pictured the singer as um, Kim Kardashian, and everyone's favorite opera singer. So anyway, that's who the singer is. <laughs> so I don't know why I felt the need to share that with you, but anyway, so I'm reading that. I'm also listening to Unsheltered by Barbara Kingsolver, and I should finish that tonight. Um, that book is really good. So it. 
takes place in two time periods, one in the um, 1870s and one in modern day. And it's about two families who are living in the same house this many years apart and um, just paralleling their lives and adventures. And um, I really like it. I hate the person that is reading the book, though, which is very distracting. I don't like her... um, I don't like her character voices. I find them very irritating. Also, she reads extremely slowly, which is fine because I'm listening to it at two times speed because she reads so slowly. So anyway, that's my... It's not a critique of the book, but a critique of her. Um, And then I just started a graphic novel called No Longer Human, which I have literally just seen a few pages of, but um, is really going to be a very depressing graphic novel which I did not know before I checked it out but I also think this is this is like a air a genre that um I've not really delved very deep into so I'm excited about it this is a Japanese work of literature it's very respected there it's like one of their uh 10 best-selling pieces of literature but it was a novel before it was, it was a, a graphic novel right? right it was a novel before it was a graphic novel and many people believe that it was the author's suicide note was this novel. So um, just, you know, very light bedtime reading. Yeah. So that's what I'm reading. Do you imagine them as a Kim Kardashian as well? No. Kim has not come into my mind yet in this book. We'll see where she features herself. Okay. So. Well, to be, to be continued. Yes. Your turn. My turn. Okay. Well... Um, last time I talked about how I was reading Ulysses and this Bible commentary, and I'm done with both of those. So now, uh, all I'm reading, because school has started, so my reading time is a lot less, um, I'm reading, um, W.E.B. Du Bois, the famous, like, um, writer, civil rights, um, activist and, and thinker, has a, um, biography that he wrote of John Brown, the abolitionist, um, probably most famous for his Harper's Ferry raid, um, which on was... On my birthday. On Rebecca's birthday. Uh, the second best thing to happen on <laughs> Rebecca's birthday. Um, anyway, uh, you know, famous for that, uh, kind of a failed attempt at an insurrection, um, like to inspire an insurrection of enslaved folks against, um, slave masters, and uh, he was, I've, I've learned, uh, the first person in the United States executed for treason, which maybe tells you something about the United States' uh, priorities as a country, that the first person they executed for treason was uh, someone trying to end slavery. But anyway, um, it's been good. Um, it's a really old book. I, I don't usually read nonfiction stuff from, I think this came, it was published in the late 1800s, early 1900s. Um, I don't remember the date exactly. But, you know, the style and kind of, like, um, expectations of a biography from that time is different. You know, so that, that kind of takes a little bit of getting used to. There's a lot of rhetorical flourishes that people probably wouldn't put now in books and stuff, you know. Um, but, you know, I have always known John Brown as the person who did the fairy raid, and that was about it. But um, he's got a pretty engaging life. And, I mean, the majority of the book is about his abolitionist activities, which... For people who don't know, he also was instrumental in um, a bunch of the kind of pre-Civil War battles that happened over Kansas and whether or not Kansas would be a slave or a free state. Um, So there's quite a bit of stuff about that. Uh, And then I'm getting to the part where he's starting to plan the ferry raid. And I think one of the things that's interesting to me about this, um, 
is that I think that like John Brown is kind of like for a lot of people a historical curiosity, you know, um, in the same way that a lot of like failed insurrectionists are, you know, like Nat Turner or you know what have you, um, where it's like oh there was this one person and they tried to start a war and it didn't work, um, and that was the end of that. And I think something I didn't realize but is coming out in the book is how thoroughly networked he was throughout the abolitionist cause. You know, he was friends with Frederick Douglass. He was acquaintances with a lot of the kind of like Northeastern, like, um, uh, like abolitionists, you know, in like Massachusetts and stuff. Like at one point in this book, he talks about like meeting Henry David Thoreau and Ralph Waldo Emerson and also Bronson Alcott, Louis Alcott's father, um, who are all part of some society that he was asking for money for to fund um, his Harper's Ferry raid. Um, and I think that like, maybe it's just, you know, me growing up in the South, you know, where I was taught about the sort of like Southern sympathetic, um, civil war stuff, you know, in school. Um, but I, I never really, you know, understood that, you know, there was a real vibrant discourse among abolitionists about what to do about slavery. You know, it's always kind of presented as like, well, they tried protests and the Underground Railroad and like the, all these kind of like peaceful things. Um, but John Brown's philosophy was that slavery was such a tenacious institution that it would never die um, peacefully. Uh, legislation would never be allowed to pass that would make slavery extinct, which was a lot what a lot of abolitionists thought would happen is we got to slowly push this cause until it finally goes away. Um, and, you know, that was something that... Uh, you know, was really hotly debated at the time, and I think it's really interesting to read about it. And W.E.B. Du Bois' writing at the kind of, like, dawn of the Jim Crow era, you know, in which he probably, I don't know, he probably had a lot of thoughts about, you know, the the longevity of slavery's legacy and the tenacity of, like, the kind of Confederate cause, even after defeat and things like that. Um, so, anyway, it's been interesting. I'm about halfway through it. Have you um, read anything else in between our last podcast and this, Shiloh. That maybe finished. Shiloh. Shiloh's only. That's name. it. Okay. I also um, I also read Strider, which is the sequel to Dear Mr. Henshaw. I've read that, um, and then I read How to Be an Anti Racist by. Well, wait, I want to hear about Shiloh. I want to hear about Shiloh. Strider. For, or Strider, Strider was good. It was. Um, I'm trying to think because it's. I feel like it's been a while. Since I read it, but um, I mean, like it's not been a while. He's well, I guess he's in middle school. He's in high school Henshaw, at yeah. this point, and um, he and his friend um, find a dog named Strider and um, decide to have joint custody of this dog. Okay, and so they work out like a parenting plan and. Um, they, all these adults are telling them, like, hey, joint custody is really hard. And you have to think about, like, this is coming from a kid that's from a, you know, yeah. divorced family. And to him, it's not going to be hard because his dad is, like, barely there. So it's like, oh, we can work it out. And they get frustrated because they're like, we want to prove these adults wrong. and We want to make it work. Um, but then they do end up having conflict about how to care for the dog and, um how to get along with each other. You get to see more of his relationship with his mom, which is really sweet. Um, his dad shows up more, but he's still, you know, I think 
Lee has kind of made peace with, like, his dad is never going to be does that active. Does his dad active. still have that other dog that's in the book? Bandit. Bandit. Yeah, he yeah. does. Um, but he ends up, like, losing his rig or something. So he's around more. So he gets his dog to, he gets his dad to help him build a fence for the dog. And um, anyway, it's a sweet book, but it's about these boys sharing joint custody of the dog. Two um, men and a baby. Yeah, it's good. Um, and then How to Be an Anti-Racist um, was good. Michael and I read... Stan- that's Ibram X. Kennedy, yes, right? Yes, yes. Michael and I read his larger tome, um, Stamp from the Beginning, which is just a history of racism in America. So a lot of those same ideas are in this book, but he adds more narratives from his own life. And what I found to be really meaningful in the book was his own, like... Um, like deconstruction with racist ideas that he had internalized, which shaped the way that he viewed himself and um, other black people and how he's really like, so he's doing a very deep self-examination while he's also um, offering readers who I think largely this book is for a white audience because that's who's going to pick up this book, you know, who's interested um, in like, how do I not be racist? Like, the, those people are typically who are going to pick up a book like this. So um, I think he does offer a lot of, like, helpful perspectives there and how you reshape um, your thoughts and ideas and providing the history be- behind those thoughts and ideas while also doing a lot of self-examination of how he's been influenced by these same ideas and has, um, like, been a part of his journey. Um, what I also appreciated was the version that I listened to was like a revised paperback edition in which he's like offering a lot of notes on the original of like, this is what I've learned since then. This is better language for this and kind of, you know, that thing. So I appreciated that. It also made me reflect on like, I think I have this tendency to be like, well, I'm going to do things the right way. Um, right now and once I learn them then I'm done learning that thing and I'll go on to the next thing and I think what he really challenges is that this journey of being an anti-racist this journey of being human in the world and growing is constantly rethinking your ideas and your language and your thoughts and that 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 journey is not going to stop and that's that self-reflection is not like you're a bad person or here's what you did wrong but um, just that that ever growing awareness of like we can always be kinder and we can always be um, more caring for one another and for ourselves and so I appreciated that perspective on it. Um, I also just listened to um, *Handmaid's Tale* by Margaret Atwood. Um, I had not read it before. I've not watched the series, and I won't watch a series just of how images in my head affect me, but. Um, the book was really good. It, I, you know, read a lot of dystopian novels, but um, it was nice to read one that uh, is written before, you know, a lot of the modern day ones that I've read. Um, yeah, I don't have a ton to say about it. I feel like everybody knows this story. Um, I had some complaints about the framework at the end. I thought it was like really corny, but the book itself was good. I just didn't like the frame. Anyway. All right. The end. The end. Um, not really the end, though, because we still have to talk about yeah. Shiloh, the main attraction. <laughs> the end of that. The, the dog, the myth, the legend. Um, so 
as, as usual, we'll talk about the author first, which it's my turn to talk about the author because Rebecca gave all of her expertise on Beverly Cleary last time. Um, so um, the author's name is Phyllis Reynolds Naylor. She was born Phil Phyllis Reynolds, I believe, um, in Indiana, Anderson, Indiana, which Rebecca and I were talking and we know someone from Anderson, Indiana, we think, but we but can't we remember who it we is. can't remember who. So if it's you, dear listener, who are from <laughs> and Anderson, Indiana, let us know. Um, so she's kind of a lifelong writer. Um, she wrote stories in like elementary school and like submitted them to Highlights and Seventeen and like a lot of those magazines. Um, I should mention she was born in the nineteen thirties, nineteen thirty three. So that's kind of like the time period when she's growing up, Great Depression and all that. Um, it sounds like the beginning of her life was kind of tough. Um, not only was it the depression, but then she got married really young at 18, and her first husband was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. Like, well, this was not something that they realized until a little bit later on. Mm -hmm. And so they were running out of money because of all of his treatments. And so she, the way that she got into, like, publishing was she um, worked at, uh, um, sorry, I'm reading my notes here. She initially was working as a secretary at a hospital in um, Chicago, but um, then uh, to pay for these treatments, she became an editorial assistant for a magazine. Um, Wikipedia didn't say which magazine. Um, but eventually they divorced, and I have to imagine it's because of the guy's schizophrenia and the difficulties um, in, in that. Um, and she, But she married again um, in 1960, um, to a guy named Rex Naylor, which is where she gets her current last name, and who's a speech pathologist, although I think he's died now. Um, but, um, 2012. Um, so she went to school again. She had graduated college by this time, um, but then she um, went back to school to get her master's degree uh, to become a uh, clinical psychologist. Um, but... Um, I guess her publishing was still kind of going steady, and she decided to pivot and not finish her degree and um, become a full-time author instead. Um, so her first book was published in 1965. It was a collection of stories. Uh, I'm assuming some of them she had published elsewhere. It was called The Galloping Goat and Other Stories. Um, and this was the first of many stories. This woman's still alive, still, still cranking old. them out. She's 90 years old. Still cranking these books out, and she's written over 130 books. Um, and she didn't start writing until she was our age. Did you say that? I, I didn't say she was our age, but she didn't start uh, publishing books until 1965. Um, so she would have been 32 at the time. Yeah. Um, wild. But uh, anyway, she, I guess, from there has had all sorts of success, especially with Shiloh. Shiloh seems to be her most acclaimed, but she's got some other. Uh, acclaims to she won some awards in the 80s for some books that she wrote um, she's got two kids and she's got four grandkids um, one of her granddaughters whose name is Sophia is also a writer uh, Wikipedia also says a comedian and a playwright um, and yeah she's um, she's trucking along uh, I think her last book that Wikipedia listed was in 2015 or 2013 or something like that but she has a ton it's extensive the number of books that she's written. Um, I had never heard of her except in the context of Shiloh, which is a book I heard about um, in, like, elementary school. But um, she's been around. Yeah. Um, so tell us about Shiloh, Rebecca. 
Okay, so um, I will just note this. Neither of us had ever read Shiloh before, but this story is very familiar to me thanks to my brother who loved the 1996 movie and we watched it often. I enjoyed it as well. Um, and so I just want to say that I feel like that movie is, there's some like differences between it and the book, but um, I feel like they do a really good job with the story. So if you like this book, um, I would suggest the 1996 movie. I think the acting's really good in the it. The author anyway. liked the movie too, apparently. She did. She did. I've not seen it in a long time, but when I was reading this, I was hearing the characters say the things because the dialogue's pretty true to the story. Anyway, so Shiloh is the first in a quartet about Shiloh. Um, Who is a dog. Yes. Um, it also, beyond just the Newberry, it also won the Sequoia Children's Book Award, the Mark Twain Readers Award, and the William Allen White Children's Book Award. Um, 1986, sorry, so it was adapted into a movie. Um, it is the 65th book written by Naylor, and she decided to write this. Did you read about this? After her um, experience? Okay. She decided to write this after an emotionally taxing experience in West Virginia in 1989, they were visiting some of their friends, and they encountered this dog who had clearly been Oh, I did read about this, because this is in the back of this, co- this library copy okay. of the book. Okay, I did not know this story, or if I did, I have forgotten it. But anyway, she was visiting these friends that lived near Shiloh, West Virginia, and um, this, this severely abused dog started following them, and then ended up camping out in the front yard of her friend's home. And so when they were leaving, she was just still very distressed about this dog. She cried about it on the way home, thinking about him. And this is what her husband asked, which, please don't ever ask me anything like this, because I thought it was so rude. But anyway, her husband asked her if she, would, if she was going to have a nervous breakdown or if she was going to do something about it. And by that's very supportive, clearly. Are you going to shut up exactly. or do something? <laughs> but by do something about it, he meant write a book. And, um, which she did, and I will say her friends end up, ended up adopting this dog and named it Clover, which I thought was sweet. They should have named it Shiloh. Well, she named it Shiloh because of their proximity to Shiloh, West Virginia. That's why they named it that in um, uh, the book, too. Yes. So, the protagonist of Shiloh is Marty Preston. He's an 11-year-old boy whose family is, um, not very wealthy. They are, um... Any extra money that they have goes to caring for their ailing grandmother. Um, This is a family with three children in it, so pretty low-income family. Um, He lives in friendly West Virginia, and just for backstory purposes, um, Naylor's friend, the, the family who she was visiting when she met the dog that inspired the story, um, their post office address is in Friendly. And so a lot of um, the settings in this book and the following books are true to that real-life town. Hmm. Is um, this book, I could never really tell, is this book meant to be contemporary, like early 90s? I felt like it was, but also I am biased because of the movie. Yeah. So whatever I, mean, I pictured was There's nothing the in movie. it that's not... Right. That, like, wouldn't be in the early 90s, but it's also something that feels like it could have taken place in, like, the 1940s, too. Like, it's very rustic. Yeah, I guess you're right. Well, they, yeah, all, anything that I think, like, features, the only thing that I could think of with modern technology is, like, they have a TV and a landline. Like, they talk about those things, but that could be yeah. many eras. Anyway, 
Um, Marty finds an abused beagle that is owned by uh, their neighbor, Judd Travers. And Judd. Judd. Never I, a good character named Judd. So Marty resolves that he's going to steal this dog. Wait, isn't Judd like the villain in Oklahoma too? Oh, I do not remember that. I think he is. Judd's just a villain name. You it's can... like Jezebel. No one gets named Jezebel <laughs> who's a good person. So anyway, Marty resolves that he's going to steal this dog and hide him. He names him Shiloh after this bridge where he first saw the dog. Um, Shiloh comes to him one night. He's run away from Judd several times, and every time he runs away from Judd, Judd beats him or starves him or something else. Because he's trying to train him to be right hunting dogs. Which be hard as nails. It's just a, an odd... Anyway... Shiloh comes to him, he harbors him, he builds him a pen on a hill on their property and sneaks him food wherever he can. And this is where the family's, like, um, income bracket, I guess you'd say, um, comes into play because there's no food that he feels like he can take from his family and um, feel okay about that. So what he does is he's basically halving all of his dinner and then giving that to Shiloh. And then he asks, like, the grocery owner to give him some food that's out of date that they can't sell. And then everyone in which town makes thinks the t- that they're starving, I and know, so they start giving the family food. It's so sad. <laughs> it's kind of sweet because his dad is a postal worker, and so all these ladies are leaving him food and sandwiches in their mailboxes. <laughs> and I just thought that was the cutest thing. So anyway, um, so one night, this German shepherd attacks Shiloh, and the secret is out that he has this dog, and he's been hiding him. His mom had found out beforehand. His, yes. Um, Sorry, I keep interrupting wor- No, it's okay. Summary. It's important. It's important. Uh, the word gets to Judd that Marty has this dog, and he demands him back when he's healed from the attack. So Marty makes up his mind that he's um, going to get this dog. He's going to find a way to convince Judd to let him pay for him. And so on his way to have this heart-to-heart with Judd, he sees Judd shoot a doe out of season. And is this there ever is, an in-season for does? I think you're not supposed to shoot them at all, right? That was kind of the implication that not only was he shooting a deer out of season, but he was also shooting a doe. I know we they clearly know that. a lot about hunting. We know, we know so much. Yeah, it's just. It's a good thing your brother doesn't listen to this podcast, or he would be very offended. (laughs) No, he would correct us. He would provide us helpful information, which we need to know. Anyway, um, this seeing this kind of gives him leverage to basically blackmail him, but it's not really blackmail because Judd's like, okay, you have to work for me for two weeks for what two dollars an hour or something ridiculous, and um, and then he keeps saying. If I decide to go through with it. Right. Um, well, and eventually he gets... They they end up having a heart-to-heart one day about how Judd has been abused by his own father and really appreciates Marty's tenacity even when he's telling Marty he's not going to give him the dog. And he gives in and gives him the dog. So, um, yeah, that's that's the book. That is the book. What do you think of the book, Rebecca? It's your turn. It's my turn. Yeah. Okay. What did you think of the book, Michael? I thought it was fine. Um, it's not, not a book that I like loved, loved. It's kind of, I was trying to explain this to Rebecca, and this may be a figment of my, this may be a narrative that I've crafted that's not true to life, but in my mind, 
my memories of Shiloh, which I did not read as a child, but I vividly remember Shiloh everywhere when I was a kid because here's what I always remember Shiloh being presented in the context of. This is how you get reluctant readers to read. This is how you get boys to read. Like, it was always very gendered. It was like, oh, boys like to read about hunting and the outdoors and dogs. And so it was always like Shiloh, where the red fern grows, old yeller. Like, all these sorts of books were, like, pushed on boys like my age. And it's not that I dislike those books, but they all kind of follow similar patterns, which is like there's this young rural kid who's plucky, but his family's kind of poor, and he meets a dog and falls in love, but the parents are not sure if he can have a dog or not, and so he's got to find some way to raise this dog himself. And so he goes through all sorts of hard work and gumption to raise the dog, and then something sad happens with the dog, and they're not sure if the dog's going to live or die, and sometimes the dogs live, sometimes they die. Um, You never know. Um, Anyway, I'm being a little snide. None of these are bad books, including Shiloh, which I like, but it was always like pushed on me in the context of this very gendered, like, boys like to read about this. Um, and I always found that just kind of like off-putting. It didn't really seem like the kind of thing I was interested in because I, I read Red, Where the Red Fern Grows. And so I'm like, why do I want another book about a kid with a dog? Um, you know, I'd read other books too, like uh, Beverly Cleary, you know, has a book called Ribsy, which is about a dog and Incredible Journey. And, you know, there's like a kind of like subculture of like children's books that are about dogs. And I have never strongly connected with them, even though I've liked some of them. Um, and I think that my suspicions were largely founded on this book. Like, this book was basically what I thought it was going to be. Um, but it's a well-done version of what that is. Um, it's just not my, like, go-to, you know, reading. But, like, I think there's a really good sense of detail in this book. Um, I'm not from West Virginia. I've only been to West Virginia to visit my aunt, who does not live in Friendly. And um, the... Uh, but... I feel like that, like, this is a pretty well-rendered thing. I don't know if it's, you know, accurate, but, you know, um, it might be. She seems to have close connections with it. And, like, just some of the stuff that goes on is just very interesting. Like, this kid's always eating around gross things in his food, for instance. And I just think that that's really interesting. Like, the book opens with the kid eating this, I don't know if it's a rabbit or something. His father's hunted and brought home this critter that they're going to eat. And so he's trying to make sure there's not buckshot in the um in the meat that he's eating he's like having to eat around the little um the the little shot pebbles things again i'm very knowledgeable about hunting um (laughs) and uh later on in the book he talks about on multiple occasions eating these peaches but he always calls them wormy peaches like they have a peach tree but i guess they're it's infested with worms or maybe like just the ones that fall on the ground have worms i'm not sure but he's always eating and he talks about eating around the worms and spitting the worms out from the wormy peaches. Um, and there's just some really great like imagery and like details like that that I think are good and kind of flesh this book out. Um, I um, I like the character of Marty. I like that his whole family. They're kind of interesting. You know, they're they're fun to read about. Um, they all have like really defined personalities. Um, Judd is like you know kind of like an interestingly reprehensible guy. You know, he's kind of one note, but he's the kind of guy you, like, love to hate, you know, because he's just so awful. Um, Anyway, I don't have, like, a ton of really specific positive things to say. Like, it's not a bad book. It's not a... But um, it's not a book that I'm, like, super enthusiastic about either because it's... I've read this kind of book before. Um, I don't really understand... Maybe this is getting tuned in the negative now, but, like... 
we were reading on Wikipedia beforehand, like, but Shiloh was huge, like, for her, um, Naylor. Like, it was, it's by far her most acclaimed book. It had a movie adaptation. It's like, it was uh, the, the, like, modern, I, I think it was the Modern Library named it, like, one of the best, like, 100 best children's books of all time. The, the TEA, or not TEA, the NEA, the National Education Educators Alliance, which is like the nationwide teachers union, um, listed it as like one of the best books for kids. Um, and I guess I frankly don't really understand that having now read it. Like, I don't understand being this enthusiastic for this book when I think there's a lot of books that are pretty similar. Um, but it's good for what it is. Yeah. I'm kind of damning with faint praise, but... Um, what did what did you think, Rebecca? I liked it. I really liked the voices of the characters. I think um, I, I I liked her dialogue. I think it was really believable. I liked her her use of dialect was not like very strong to where it seemed like a caricature, but it just seemed like true to life to yeah, me. Yeah, this this book does a good job of avoiding like exploitation. You yes. know, these are like clearly. But you can also yeah. tell that it's set in a fairly rural small town so I really liked that I think she honors that well and it makes sense that she um has friends there yeah and yeah so I I think she does that really well I really liked the relationship of the family members like watching him interact with his sisters and feeling care towards them and also mutual frustration um I liked his relationship with his mom and the conversations they had about like um, just honesty and what she can keep from his dad and what she can't. Um, that all seemed very real to me. And, um, yeah, I, I really, I really liked that. What I, what I really liked was that, um, just the explorations of the different ethical dilemmas in the book. And I think that she has some pretty insightful questions. And what was interesting to me when I was researching, is that the questions that she has Marty ask out loud are the ones that she asked herself when she found this abused dog and then tried to put herself into the perspective of an 11-year-old boy who would be doing this. And I think we all remember when we were children before we were bogged down by like the demands and concerns of adults. We had our own demands and concerns that were very real and vivid to us, and some of the rules of adults just didn't make sense to us. And you definitely see that in Marty and this exploration of what is it what does it mean to own a living being? Yeah. And what it, what are your rights to that living being? And that is true. And like I think some of the adult rules still don't make sense. Like it's Yeah. It's very typical. I think a lot of people would still say this today, but it's presented in the book as patently absurd, like the adult justifications for why they can't just steal Shiloh. Like this dog who's very clearly being like abused within an inch of its life right and marty's like oh i we got to save this dog and his dad is just dead set on no that's judd's property we got to return it to judd but and he's also you also see his dad struggle with this when he's he tells marty a very clear black and white thing and then when he's face to face with judd and has met this dog mm-hmm. like he softens quite a bit and you see right. him like without getting his perspective because we you know he's right. not the the narrative voice that we hear you do see him break these things down another thing that we didn't mention is another big driver for marty is that he's found a dead dog 
with right. a bullet in his head Assuming that he's pretty that judge, sure that Judd killed, killed it. And yeah. so, you know, he's having nightmares about this dog being dead that has a love and concern for him. And so these questions of what is personal property, especially when it's a living being, and also what what is right? Is stealing the worst sin than allowing a dog to die on my watch? You know, and I just, I think those are very important questions um, that we could ex- extrapolate to other things, but... I think she handles those questions with care and and very well. Um, yeah, so I I really liked that exploration piece. Yeah, it is interesting because the like I said, like I think it's pretty realistic to say that like an adult would be like, well, no, that dog belongs to someone else. We're gonna take it back, mm-hmm. you know, and that's more important than dog's well being. Although I think a lot of people would say otherwise too. But like the there's a lot of like the ethical stuff in the book that I do think the book ends up kind of, I don't know, maybe this is not giving the book enough credit, but I think the book ends up taking, simply taking Marty's side on all of this stuff. And I think that it is set up to take Marty's side. So like, um, for example, um, Marty has some questions about whether or not it's the right thing to blackmail Judd about the dogs, but ultimately it works out for him and it's fine. And I think that like any reasonable person would say, if you're not going to outright steal the dog, then what Marty did is the next best thing. Um, but it's just kind of like a random thing that falls out of the sky that Marty's able to exploit this. You know, Judd, who's a very mean person and would never sell the dog, you know, he would rather kill the dog than just sell it, basically. Spite. Just out of spite, yeah. Um, and, I don't know, there's like a kind of convenience to it where, like, these ethical questions are kind of, like, resolved by the end, in ways that simply flatter Marty's perspective, in ways that don't really deal with the ethics of it. Like, the fact that he sees the deer shot out of season saves him from the question of, should he steal Shiloh or not? He doesn't have to actually sit down and answer, is stealing more ethical than allowing a dog to be mistreated? Um, And the same thing with the blackmail, you know, which is that he blackmails the guy, and then in the end it all works out. He doesn't actually have to go through with a lot of the things that he was worried that he was going to have to go through with. Um, Judd threatens to not you know, go through on their deal because you know, he's just that kind of guy, but then he ends up doing it anyway. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I think I probably didn't like, connect with the ethics that much because they're not really... When I was reading it, they weren't really allowed to be as thorny as would be interesting to me as an adult. Mm-hmm. But I guess the, it's important to recognize that me as an adult is not the audience for for this book. And maybe these are things that kids would have not thought about. Another big ethical dilemma is they don't really have the money to care for this dog. And so Marty also feels like he's burdening his family with another financial situation yeah. that they can't really deal with. And how... Also, I think it's important that Judd is also a person in poverty, you know, or right on the edges of it, you know. And so just 
I don't know. Like, I think that juxtaposition is interesting. I don't really know what she's trying to say about these two people in poverty or except that it's a rural town where a lot of people are. I don't, I don't know. I don't really know. Yeah. But I think it's, I wonder if she explores that a little bit more in her other books because it yeah. is an interesting dynamic. Well, and like you, you mentioned the family not having enough money to raise a dog. Like at the end of the book, he gets the dog. And I wonder if the sequels kind yeah. of go into, are there like, you know, economic problems with trying to take care of the dog or... Yeah. Or what, you know. So what didn't you like beyond what we've talked about? I don't know if there's anything I didn't like about the book. And like, I, I wouldn't say it that strongly. But I think my, my biggest thing is I'm simply not interested in boys trying to own dogs. <laughs> um, and I understand. Like, I'm just not a pet just person. not your genre. I'm not a pet person. And so I already have that thing going against me, which is that I don't have a built-in affinity for animals like a lot of people do and then on top of that like I mentioned earlier it's just very familiar like the beats that this goes through are like beat for beat where the red fern grows for a long period of time um and that book's way sadder that book is way sadder I think way better to be honest um like I think that's a much more complicated book was only an honor I know uh I remember that but um so, so there's nothing that like I dislike about it, but as I was reading it, I wasn't very engaged for long periods of time because it felt familiar. The prose is very straightforward. It's not bad prose. Like a lot of this book is, it's not bad. It's just not really something that I'm very excited about. Right. So I can't. I don't really have a lot more specifics than that and what I've already said. Um, yeah. So there's nothing, nothing that I didn't like. Just not a lot that I loved. Yeah. For me, there are some loose ends that I feel like are not really developed or are just kind of like thrown together. Then I wish, I wish the scene at the end where he's working to get the dog. I don't know. I felt like that was kind of anticlimactic because it was. Right it's like there. the last fifteen pages of the yeah. book or something. And, and there's not really a clear understanding of why Judge why Judd changed his mind or if Marty just has a false perception of this man you know like you don't really know the truth there which I would have liked a little bit more resolution there they have one conversation in which they feel like they can empathize with one another and in a movie that makes sense because that's all you really get is that one defining scene if it's a children's movie typically there's like one defining scene where the villain has a change of heart or loses Mm -hmm. you know but in a book falls into poop Right. I love that in the 90s. Right. They're always falling into poop. But in a book, you have space to explore that more. And I, I just felt like we could have used more of the book in looking at that dynamic or understanding. I don't really need a lot of development from Judd, but I would like to understand how he came to the conclusion to do the right thing at the end. And I don't really feel like I get that. And it just, it's it's like it's like he works Marty so rough to the bone that he's like, man, I'm really just a a jerk and he's still working for me so maybe I should consider what he's doing it just it didn't it didn't I don't know it didn't seem believable to me if Judd is who we're led to believe that he is um yeah it does that thing where there's like a kind of one note villain the whole time and then you learn one kind of sympathetic detail about them yeah and then they're kind of not a villain anymore right which which that detail we learn is fine like it I is think, yeah I think it is enough to establish empathy I don't think it's enough to convince me that 
Judd, who we believe has killed a dog before just because the dog wasn't listening to him and has starved all of his dogs and has beaten his dogs, is just decides, well, I'm just going to give this dog to this kid. Like, I'm glad he did that, but it doesn't make sense. And, and to what we know about Judd, it just is underdeveloped, is all I'll say. Um, the other thing is the piece that I was just talking about with how are they going to afford to keep this dog? That's another question that is never really picked up again. Um, except to say, like, it doesn't really matter because they love him. But I that's, that's just disingenuous because maybe Judd's dogs are starved because he can't afford to feed them. You know what I mean? He like, does talk and, in the book about starving them as a way to make them... Like right. that, that's like a training thing that he does. Right, but could that not just be his justification that I can't really afford to feed my dogs and the only way I can afford to eat is to hunt? You know, like there's yeah, more maybe. questions there to explore, but like we, I don't know, I just think the question of money is like thrown in there but without ever like understanding why it's there, I guess I'd say. Yeah, it's a book that is adjacent to a lot of kind of deeper more complex issues but that doesn't burrow down into very many of them Mm -hmm. and I mean I think that's just the nature of a lot of children's books like it's pretty rare to get a children's book like um Roll of Thunder Hear My Cry you know we talked about which is like a treatise in a lot of ways on like certain issues um I think a lot of children's books kind of go for and I don't mean this to say the authors are cynical but a lot of books kind of go for that this would be a good thing to supplement the curriculum with in school. You know, like where the book itself is not the curriculum, you read it in conjunction with something in history or in like whatever. You know, I I think a lot of books are kind of in that sweet spot when they try to address social issues for children, which is that, well, this will be something that maybe will be an open-ended thing that we can allow schools to use in curriculum. Yeah. Yeah, but I I liked this book a lot, and I do wonder if some of those bigger questions, it would make sense if you know, this is part of a quartet, so she could explore a lot of those other things before they get fleshed out more. Um, but yeah, I give it a thumbs up. I would too, just because, like, like I said, it's not a, it's not a bad book. It's fine for what it does, but it's a, just not something you're interested. It's not a, in. yeah, it's not, it's not really for me, which is, which is fine. So, next time. We have decided we are going to be reading Bud Not Buddy. Which, which is in the, the 2000s, right? Yeah. I think it was the 2000 winner. Let me see. Um, yes, by Christopher Paul Curtis. So neither of us have read that one either. So um, That was another book that featured prominently in the Get Struggling Readers, Get the Boys to Read. Like That was another one that in my mind is associated with those sort of conversations. Um So we'll We'll let you know what we think. Anyway, don't forget that you can email us at, um, oh shoot, what's our email? NewberryChronicles at gmail.com, the name of this podcast. Um, And uh, yeah, we'd love to hear from you. Um, Any other thoughts before we leave? No, thanks for listening. Bye.